Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, this is the Immigration Advocates Network podcast interview with Charles Kamasaki, Executive Vice President, National Council of La Raza. Today we'll be talking about preparing for reform, lessons learned from IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act. Welcome, Charles. Hi, great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to start by asking you to describe your work and the work of your organization to give a bit of context for the listeners. Yes, I'm Executive Vice President at the National Council of La Raza, NCLR. Uh, NCLR is the largest civil rights and advocacy organization representing Latinos in the U.S. We represent about 300 local affiliates. These are community-based organizations that provide a broad range of services, um, almost everything under the sun, uh, and also quite diverse in terms of size, uh, ranging anywhere from mega-million-dollar community development corporations to tiny storefronts, um, you know, whose furniture consists of a single card table, two folding chairs, and a, a, a light hanging from the ceiling. Um, NCLR's role is uh, twofold, uh, to support those organizations in carrying out their direct services, uh, and second, to serve as a voice for Latinos in national public policy debates. Thank you. Let's start with a brief description of the IRCA program because, uh, you know, what we'll do here today is compare a bit and draw from lessons of the past. So tell us about IRCA. Give an overview and how it impacted the nonprofit community and how we responded to the reform. Sure, Pat. Uh, IRCA actually had several different legalization programs uh, let me just concentrate on the two major ones. Uh, there was a general legalization program uh, that uh, was uh, designed largely to legalize those who had been in the country for some period of time. So IRCA passed in 1986, and those eligible for, legal, for the general legalization program were people who had entered and who had been continuously resident in the U.S., since prior to January 1, 1982. There was a second major legalization program called the Special Agricultural Worker Program, uh, and it's likely I'll lapse into calling it by its acronym, the SAW program. Uh, there was also a Cuban Haitian program and a variety of other smaller initiatives, but those were the two major legalization programs in IRCA. So what did uh, IRCA provide for the folks who had entered by January 1st, 1982, and what was the process for applying? Well, IRCA actually established a fairly complex and difficult process. Uh, applicants were required to fully document uh, their residence since the date of entry, um, and as would be familiar to immigration practitioners, uh, with a few exceptions, applicants also had to demonstrate they were not excludable uh, on, say, public charge grounds or other grounds. Um, and as I think most immigration practitioners are aware, documenting uh, 
uh, one's eligibility um, to overcome those exclusions uh, is a non-trivial but uh, task um, and often very difficult and very burdensome. IRCA also, uh, through the statute itself, uh, established a network of quote-unquote qualified designated entities. These were nonprofits and, and uh, in, in one case, uh, a for-profit uh, organizations uh, that were certified by the Immigration and Naturalization Service to provide services uh, to applicants and uh, to actually receive applications. That is to say, INS delegated to these qualified designated entities, or QDEs, the ability to actually receive formal applications. And as I recall, there were uh, the requirements in terms of uh, proving English language, capability and familiarity with history and civics. Can you talk a bit about some of the requirements there? Yes, so not unlike some of the programs that have been debated since IRCA's passage, the uh, McCain-Kennedy program in 2006-2007 uh, and the bill that passed the Senate, uh, the legalization program under IRCA was, a, in effect, a two-stage program. Uh, one had to demonstrate um, that uh, an applicant met the uh, initial requirements, that is, the date of entry and continuous residence and overcoming the grounds of exclusion uh, at the first stage. And in order, and, and successful applicants at that stage received temporary residence status. In order to qualify for permanent residence status, one had to meet, again, all the normal grounds of exclusion and requirements for permanent residence, but in addition had to demonstrate a, in, in the language of the statute, quote, a minimal understanding, uh, unquote, of English and the uh, civics. Um, I think the actual term in the statute was history and uh, history of the United States. Um, so it was not quite to the level of the naturalization exam, but it was um, still, again, a, a non-trivial uh, requirement that had to be met. Can you talk a bit about you know, the number of people who applied and how and whether they were served by nonprofits or proceeded pro se or private counsel, if you have that data? Well. The data in those days were um, far less accurate, and uh, estimates and assumptions, uh, in my judgment, were um, far less based on fact than, than now. And so there was a lot more uncertainty um, about the data in those days. We've learned a lot since then. And uh, we have the ability to look back on what happened, uh, I think, with some greater degree of certitude than uh, maybe even a few years ago. So to give you the raw numbers, and then I'll add some interpretation in a second, about 1.8 million people, just under 1.8 million people, applied for the regular legalization program. And the 
equivalent number for the SAW program was 1.3 million. So taken together, it was about 3.1, a smidgen over 3 million people came forward to apply for those legalization programs. Of those 3.1 million or so who applied, about 90% of the legalization applicants, the regular legalization program applicants, ultimately received permanent resident status. And the equivalent number for the SAW program was just under 85%. Now, if you take, take those numbers and you step back and you look at them through the lens of what we now believe are stronger numbers um, historically about the size and the demographic characteristics of the unauthorized population, it looks like that about three-quarters of the total eligible population. That's not to say the total unauthorized population as of 1986, but of the total eligible population uh, for those programs um, ended up receiving, um, ended up applying, and as I say, the, uh, around 90% of those ultimately received legalization. Uh, if you compare that to the results of other countries um, where in Canada or Australia or France or, or other European countries, uh, in generally, although it's hard to uh, generalize about a couple of dozen legalization programs that other countries have had, uh, the U.S. program was by far the most successful. Um, most legalization programs in, in other countries were lucky to get 50% of the estimated eligible population. Now, Pat, you also asked a second uh, question that's really important, I think, to nonprofits, um, and that is how many of those uh, who did apply uh, went through the QDE or the nonprofit program and, and how many uh, applied uh, by themselves or self-filed. And um, those numbers are not as um, precise as the demographic numbers, but uh, there were some surveys done um, by the INS, and uh, there were some data that one can actually capture from old INS records. Uh, and um, so the, the numbers are these. Uh, about a quarter of the SAW program applicants applied directly through nonprofit organizations. Um, which means about three-quarters, obviously self-filed, and uh, with the regular legalization program, about 20% uh, applied directly through or applied through QDEs, uh, while 80% self-filed. Now, the major asterisk there, however, is that in a number of surveys and estimates um, done by observers at the time, it appears that about half of the population received some sort of support or assistance from a nonprofit, uh, even if they ultimately went on to self-file. Um, so the way I'd like to think of it is that about half of the population required some form of assistance, um, typically from a nonprofit organization, and of that half, uh, half of those, again, uh, required 
quite deep assistance that that uh, uh, to enable the nonprofit to actually file the application on their behalf. And and half of those who did re receive assistance were able to go on and self-file. Uh, and then with respect to uh, attorneys, um, the best data that I've been able to find suggests that about 5% of the um, total applicants uh, received the help of an attorney. Interesting. That is an attorney in private practice. Obviously, there were a number of nonprofits that employed, uh, employed attorneys as part of their legalization programs. That's an astoundingly high success rate when you look at that 85 or 90 percent who ultimately got legal permanent residency, considering how many people proceeded you know, on their own, right? Right. So let's talk about what worked well and what could be improved in terms of the response and the role of the nonprofit service providers. How did we do, and how can we learn from what we did? Well, let's start with the government, what the government did right and what the government did wrong. Um, and, and I must say, having gone through the IRCA process and, and uh, having worked at NCLR um, back in the day, um, the judgments I'm coming to now are, are really far different from the ones I did um, uh, I made when I was wearing an advocacy hat um, when, in our eyes, the INS was doing everything possible to screw up the program. Um, looking at it in retrospect and with the, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, the INS did a lot right. Uh, it started its planning process in 1983 for a bill that ultimately was enacted in 1986. It um, set up a uh, parallel legalization infrastructure, so it, it did not seek to implement the program through its existing infrastructure. It, in, in effect, it set up a whole new um, infrastructure dedicated solely to the legalization program. Uh, importantly, it uh, did not rely only on its uh, existing staff, which I believe, and I think history would suggest, uh, tended to have a greater focus on enforcement, and instead it asked for volunteers both from their uh, existing employee network, but also asked for retirees, recent retirees, uh, as well as um, other parts of the federal government. It recruited heavily from other parts of the federal government. And, and I think as a result, uh, it was able to establish a core, a cadre of senior people in the legalization program who were, in fact, dedicated to making the program a success. Um, the other thing it did well um, was it consulted uh, quite extensively, uh, particularly with the U.S. Catholic Conference and, and some of the other more established um, immigration uh, and refugee assistance providers in designing that program. Um, so I think the government did a lot right. Uh, on the nonprofit side, I, I, I think we, and I mean the royal we there collectively, meaning all nonprofits, also did a lot of things right. Um, the National Immigration Forum uh, convened a series of meetings 
well in advance of the legalization programs start uh, to begin planning. Uh, the form itself had started its own planning process in 1984. Um, a number of uh, immigration assistance providers, Immigrant Legal Resource Center in particular, um, were able to pull together uh, practice manuals um, for legalization uh, well before the program began, even though there was a, a fairly short six-month period before the date of enactment and the beginning of legalization program. Uh, AILA um, and others uh, played a huge role in um, helping prepare and train um, nonprofits in uh, designing their own programs. Uh, and there was an important advocacy component as well. The uh, INS, the original INS regulations um, uh, implementing the program were, I believe, and, uh, and I think uh, the results would suggest um, were, were far too restrictive, and in part through advocacy and also in part through extensive litigation uh, over the course of the program, uh, it was made, I, I think, as, as generous as Congress uh, had intended. Um, one other thing I would note is that um, I think the nonprofit community did a good job of not just focusing on the sort of big picture issues, although they were very important issues, um, about designing sort of a macro system to uh, prepare to provide assistance to over 1.5 million uh, applicants. Um, but I think the, the sector was also pretty good at a division of labor. So organizations like the, the organization that later became NILC, the National Immigration Law Center uh, focused deeply on public charge and public benefits questions. Uh, AILA and the National Lawyers Guild, the American Bar Association, um, set up brief banks and processes for re representing uh, denied applicants in appeals. Um, organizations like NCLR and others focused on questions of tax liability and straightening out Social Security earnings. Um, Later, there was a procedure required for HIV testing for the second stage. Um, so I think on the nonprofit side, we did a lot of things well. And I must say that the foundation community um, was also very important. Um, the Ford Foundation in particular, the Rosenberg Foundation, the Joyce Foundation, all provided early money to support these convenings that I talked about and the manuals and the brief banks. Um, and I don't think we would have had the kind of successful program we did have um, without without that early foundation support. So uh, even though there were a lot there were lots of tensions between nonprofits and the INS, um, many of them resulting in uh, protracted class action litigation. By the way, uh, virtually all of which were won by um, the public interest attorneys representing the legalizing population. Um, all in all, again, in comparison to uh, the experience of other countries, the U.S. had an enormously successful legalization program or programs uh, in IRCA. Can you talk a little bit about 
you know, what held the national organizations together through this process, some of the new partners that we worked with, and outreach efforts as well. Sure. Uh, Pat, that's an important question, uh, and one I think that's likely to face um, the, the current uh, immigration uh, assistance infrastructure. Um, when IRCA passed, what we now know of as the, say, immigrant assistance infrastructure was virtually non-existent. Uh, clinic did not exist. Um, the network of Central American organizations, Carescens, Aurescate, uh, Centro Crescente, uh, did not exist um, or were in their very early stages. Um, the number of BIA uh, accredited organizations was tiny uh, in the dozens, not the hundreds that exist now. Um, and so there was uh, no way that um, if it was only the exist that, that that if the nonprofit infrastructure had only been limited to the uh, existing refugee and immigrant uh, provide assistance providers at the time, which were mainly the so-called VALAGs, the voluntary agencies that mainly had been doing refugee resettlement work. Uh, and we're sort of doing immigration on the side. Um, if, if those, if that had been the only nonprofit infrastructure that existed, we would not have had the results we we had in IRCA. And so, a number of new players, uh, or new players in in '86 or '87, um, had to come to the fore. And some of those were NCLR affiliates. These were social service organizations that had not been doing. Uh, a lot of immigration work, um, but uh, learned and were trained by uh, folks like AILA and the Catholic Conference and others. Um, I think um, you had mentioned earlier the the question of the second stage, the, the requirement to learn English and civics, and, and um, so school systems and others also had to be involved uh, in this work. And in terms of what held us together, you know, I think there really was a, a shared commitment of maximizing the participation of the eligible population in legalization. Uh, and while there were natural, uh, parochial, and ideological and financial tensions uh, between a number of organizations, I, I do believe, with, with very few exceptions, um, all of us uh, who were involved in that program really were uh, linked together by this uh, commitment to making sure that everyone uh, who was eligible for legalization ought to uh, have the opportunity to apply. Um, one area where I think we did not do as well um, as we could have, and again, meaning the royal we, the government and the nonprofit sector, um, was in public education and outreach. Um, and by the way, I, I, I think if, if one were to uh, talk about some of the shortcomings in the DACA implementation, I think mo many practitioners uh, would agree that that's been a problem. Uh, IRCA had a statutorily authorized um, 
public education program um, administered by the INS, uh, but it was a very small program. It was a uh, $10 million program. Um, and uh, that would be, you know, something like $22 million in current terms. You know, it was clearly the, the, the size of the program wasn't sufficient um, to reach the eligible population of, you know, something like 5 million people. Um, so what uh, what was done? I, I think there were uh, there were heroic efforts by um, nonprofit organizations, uh, by a number of major newspapers uh, that really focused a lot on ERCA coverage, uh, both in the English and Spanish language press, um, and then a number of other maybe unusual actors came forward. Uh, major public utilities, library associations, and others who had a lot of contact with the public were remarkably cooperative in using their channels of communication to try and get the word out. State local governments um, uh, in, in a number of areas, particularly in large areas of the um, large areas where there were large concentrations of the unauthorized were also uh, very helpful. So um, I think there was a, a sense of mission, um, I think, both on the government side and the nonprofit side and the private sector side of, of those who were paying attention. Um, and that was very important to the program's success. Uh, but I would also uh, note that, that the the public education effort was was probably the area where we um, uh, had the biggest problems. And what were some of the unanticipated challenges and outcomes? I've been I've been wrestling with that issue um, a bit, and hindsight is always um, you know the the cliche of hindsight being always. 2020 is true in one sense, but it's also difficult in another in the sense that it's, it's uh, I think sometimes it's hard to get back to exactly what one's state of mind uh, might have been, um, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, but there were, I think, some challenges. I don't want to say they were necessarily unanticipated, but they uh, turned out to be pretty important. And, and some of these are not unlike some of the challenges that uh, folks involved in the DACA program or folks who might have been involved in the um, TPS program for Salvadorans and for Central Americans and uh, faced in, in the 90s. Uh, one is that um, related to an outreach challenge, uh, the, while the participation of Latinos generally and Mexicans in particular uh, indexed at about what it should have been or, or maybe even a little higher. Um, populations of Asians in particular, the applicants were, numbers of applicants were, were far lower than expected. And, um, and it, when I say Asians, I mean Asians writ large, um, uh, not just uh, Chinese and Filipino, but but East Asians as well. Um, there were some geographic challenges. We did, not surprisingly, better in uh, 
urban areas with large concentrations of uh, uh, immigrants and therefore immigrant-serving organizations didn't do very well in some rural areas and didn't do very well in, you know, what people are now calling some of the new gateway um, uh, areas of, of the Deep South and, and the Midwest. Um, we, I think, weren't very good at triage. Um, and uh, earlier, before the podcast began, Pat, you and I were talking about, you know, lines around the block at some of these nonprofit service providers uh, during uh, much of the program. I mean, that wasn't just on the first day or the first month, right? Those those existed virtually every Saturday and Sunday um, for the whole year. I think part of the reason that happened uh, and part of the reason why, frankly, some of those people left those lines and went and applied on their own uh, was because as a nonprofit sector, we were sort of treating the population as a single demographic um, when, in fact, uh, as it turned out, a fair number were able to apply on their own. A fair number only needed a modest amount of assistance. Uh, and, and some maybe who required deeper assistance um, either never came forward or, or were discouraged uh, or denied. And, and so as we think about the future and a much larger eligible population, and, and while in absolute terms our nonprofit infrastructure has grown substantially in the last 30 years, it, it probably hasn't grown um, commensurate with the size of the unauthorized population, it, it seems to me one of the big lessons learned um, from IRCA is, um, and I think we're also learning it to some extent with DACA, um, is that there there are a big chunk of this population that 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 probably can do a lot uh, either on its own or with a fairly modest amount of assistance. Um, and that we ought to find ways to really concentrate our enormous expertise and um, but but limited resources uh, on the portions of the population that really need uh, deep assistance, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one counseling, often over multiple sessions. Sure, such as online screening, perhaps to send the folks who really need the help for help and give the others what they need to put together the best application possible on their own. That's exactly right. Uh, the, and there are some other models, the, the sort of workshop model that many Ian um, partners have, have used for naturalization and, and DACA, I think, has its role. Um, having pure information sessions uh, that, that don't involve application assistance um, but can potentially serve uh, many, many, many people uh, at a time, um, online broadcast, town hall. Um, you know, it, it seems to me we have to use every conceivable tool uh, at our disposal. Right. So let's move into the next part of our interview, talking about how we can apply some of these lessons learned. And, you know, maybe you could make a few key observations or recommendations on how we can prepare and how you might like to see um, nonprofit and USCIS response 
to immigration reform unfold? Well, that's a that's a big topic. <laughs> Me, um, just just trying to address a, a, a few points with respect to USCIS. Um, you know, they did something really quite impressive with DACA, not that there weren't challenges and not that there aren't things we all would have hoped they could could have done and might still do better. Uh, but in a quite short period of time, um, really less than a couple of months, they were able to stand up an infrastructure um, that to date has, you know, received and is processing, what, uh, over half a million, maybe 600,000 uh, DACA uh, applications, um, get regs out, establish an examinations and, and uh, review system. Um, and, you know, I think the, the, the fact that technology has improved so much um, in the last three decades uh, has been a big part of that. Um, and I think under Ali Mallorca's leadership, uh, they've also really listened um, to what a lot of the practitioners uh, have were recommending and have recommended. Um, that has really helped uh, make sure that program was a credible, um, relatively reasonably effective program given all of the givens. Um, Similarly, I think in, in, the, in the DACA context, uh, given that none of us had much lead time, uh, that there weren't a lot of new resources available uh, that I think the nonprofit um, uh, infrastructure has done a good job of uh, doing what it could uh, with uh, the resources it had. Um, in that context, then, as we plan for and think about a legalization, I, again, I think the, there's a lot that the nonprofit infrastructure is doing right. Uh, clinic has stepped up to uh, pull together a number of convenings of, of nonprofit organizations and others uh, to begin planning uh, for legalization. The firm um, network has done some similar work, as have uh, a number of other uh, organizational networks, uh, um, the United Farmworker Foundation and Farmworker Justice and others. Um, it, it does seem to me that there could be and maybe should be more conversations between the government um, and the immigration assistance community about a potential legalization program. Maybe, you know, none of us want to jinx it, uh, but if we were to follow the IRCA model, um, those conversations began, you know, three years before the bill was ultimately enacted, and I think it played a role in uh, making sure there, the, that the infrastructure was was able to be uh, pulled together in time um, and with the capacity to deal with that program. So I think some of that would be uh, pretty important. Um, and then I, I, I do think that... Um, we need to be thoughtful, as I say, about maybe segmenting um, the potential population and thinking through uh, how many folks might be able to apply um, with 
just an online system with prompts, like a TurboTax-type uh, system. Um, you know, how much can we do in terms of uh, outreach uh, uh, via the web or through uh, apps um, that, among others, you know, Ian has really helped to uh, pioneer in the citizenship space. Um, and uh, I also think that we need to think through um, uh, how we're planning to reach uh, the uh, portion of the population um, that is not likely to apply in a first wave, that is not likely to respond to an online appeal, uh, that probably doesn't read newspapers, um, that may have a problem um, that might lead them to think that they might not qualify or that don't believe they can afford uh, the program. Um, you know, those sort of hard-to-reach Populations, um, I think, are going to require uh, much more targeted, much more resource-intensive strategies. And, and I'm not sure we've done much more than sort of scratch the surface of, of uh, how we're going to reach that population. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your thoughts and your time on this. Is, is there anything else that we should address or that you'd like to add? Uh, no, not except that I think um, there are lots of opportunities, I think, for uh, practitioners and, and scholars and advocates still uh, to be uh, asserting themselves into the uh, various planning processes um, or mid-course processes in the case of DACA uh, that are ongoing, and I, I would encourage that. Um, and I would also encourage those of us in the immigration assistance world uh, to begin reaching out to the next concentric circle, the Goodwills, the United Ways, the other nonprofit um, networks and providers that I suspect we're going to need the help of uh, if uh, we're so lucky as to uh, be able to enact comprehensive uh, immigration reform that includes a major legalization program. Um, so when I talk about outreach, um, it's not just about the eligible population. And when we talk about planning and convening, it shouldn't just be about um, talking to all of our friends and colleagues and other practitioners. I, it seems to me we need to be both inward-focused and, and also outward-focused in, in thinking about the non-traditional players that we're also going to need to help us um, through a, a major legalization program. That's right. Well, hopefully we can distribute this podcast far and wide and people can think about how to work together and how to bring in some of those new partners. Thank you so much for your time. This has been Charles Kamasaki with the National Council of La Raza. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Pat.